As we come again here now to the Word of God, before the Word of God even, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of James in chapter 4? We'll be in a moment and just uh, in James chapter 4. And before we read these things, would you please pray with me? Our Lord God, would you help us in this moment to humble ourselves before your mighty hand that at the proper time you would exalt us? Lord, give us the grace to submit here to your word. Open our ears to hear it and our hearts to believe it. Would you change us by these things that we would love and honor you? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, the book of James in chapter 4. I'll begin here in verse 4 and read through verse 10. So James chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Now, yikes. We've come to a section that one scholar in writing about these things calls the emotional climax of the book of James, and I think that's probably a fitting assessment. My hunch is that if we were to hear James himself, the author of this letter, James read his own letter to the people out loud, that this is where he would get the loudest in his reading. There's a sense of of urgency here that these things are really important, and he gives us some words of tough love. So we know if we were to read from cover to cover all of James altogether throughout the letter, even from the very first sentences of the letter, we've heard James refer to his listeners as my brothers. Sometimes he even says my beloved brothers. So he's writing here not just to us as co-workers, you know, friends or neighbors, although it might also be that. He uses family language with us. We know that God has adopted 
every Christian into his family. Not every person is in God's family, but every Christian is. We are children of God through Jesus. So James cares for these people, loves these people as family, as brothers and sisters, and that's still true here in this text. And yet, he doesn't call the listeners brothers here. Did you notice how he called them at the beginning? He calls us by a different title, verse 4. You adulterous people. In the Greek, the original language that James was writing, that's just a single word. Moihelides, he says. Adulteresses. And even adulteresses... That's kind of a nicer sounding translation of what he's calling us. You can imagine a little more crass or vulgar word for adulteress that we might translate it into. So what's going on here? Why is James suddenly taking this very harsh tone and calling us such harsh names? To understand what's going on with this, we, we need to zoom out, even out bigger than just James. We need to take a really big picture of the whole Bible. If we were to look at all of Scripture, so from Genesis to Revelation, the main way in which God relates to his people, the main way in which we relate to God is by way of, listen, by way of covenant. God relates to us through covenant, and a covenant there's longer definitions of this, but it simply is a, is a solemn promise between two persons or parties. That's what a covenant is. So God is in covenant with people throughout the pages of the scripture. We see God making covenant with Adam and Eve in the garden and all their descendants. He makes covenant with Noah after the flood. He makes covenant with Abraham and Moses and David. And now we're under what's called the new covenant which has been sealed in the blood of Jesus. God relates to us in covenant. And covenant is more relational than just a contract between two business partners. You sign here, I sign there, there we go. It's also more formal, however, than just kind of a casual relationship between friends. It combines elements of both of those things. The clearest example that we have today of covenant is in marriage. We see covenant marriage. There's a pretty involved process, even today, for covenant marriage. So when, a person, when two people get married, you know, sometimes it's bigger, sometimes it's smaller, but there's often some sort of big ceremony, lots of planning. There might even be lots of money in, involved. But even if you elope, <laughs> even if you see, I don't want to do all those extra things, and we're going to try to skirt around that. Even if you do, do those things, you still have to go and file paperwork you know, there's a waiting period in which you have to wait to receive your license. Then you have to go to the courthouse or to an ordained minister, or I think to a ship captain. I don't know exactly how that works, but there, there's, there's, there's a signing of documents even. There's a process to that. There has to be witnesses that testify that they've seen you. You have to prove who you are through your identity, uh, cards of some sort. There's a formal contract to the marriage, but we all know that it's more than just that, right? It's not just a contract. In a marriage covenant, there's also vows, 
pledges of love and fidelity, a pledge of faithfulness through sickness and in health till death do us part. And this solemn promise between two persons in marriage is binding. Now, I know that not everyone takes that covenant marriage promise as seriously as we might. Sometimes we forget the sacred vows of the covenant. Sometimes people don't even understand the vows that they're making in the first place. But whether we realize it or not, the covenant still binds the two together. In the Lord's relationship between himself and his people, he often compares that relationship to the covenant of husband and wife. That he refers to himself as the husband of his bride. And even during the exile of his people, when they were sent off to other lands, when they, when they felt deserted, that covenant is still in effect. He talks about it lots of places, but there's an extended discussion of it in Isaiah chapter 54. I, I thought about trying to summarize this or cut it down, but I, I just couldn't bring myself to do it because it's really lovely. So I'm going to read this all. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 4. Listen for the covenant and love aspects here. Isaiah 54, verse 4. Fear not. This is the Lord speaking. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you won't be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you. Like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore to the waters of Noah that they should no more go over the earth, so I've sworn that I will not be angry with you. And I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the, the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. These are the words of covenant. He says here, even if everything falls away, even the mountains, the hills, all fall away, still my covenant of peace will remain. Come hell or high water, he has set his love on you. And he will keep his vows because our God is faithful to his promises. And if that were the end of the story, all would be well. But the problem we know, of course, in time and over the course of Scripture is that while God is faithful to the covenant, we, on the other hand, have been unfaithful to the covenant. And we have chased after forbidden love. 
And it's in this context now that James bursts out in this emotional climax of the letter, Moihalides, adulteresses, what on earth are you doing? The Lord has loved you with cords of compassion. Do you now abandon the one who has so loved you, the one who you have pledged faithfulness to? If you love Jesus at all, your lives don't show it. You've chased after friendship with the world instead, and you've chosen some casual fling with the world over your marriage love with God. You can see now, I think, at least if we think about it a bit, how comparing our situation to an adulterous relationship or an affair we can understand why James would be so upset about this. That we would throw away something that's so precious. Now, God's response to our unfaithfulness here is many things, but one that's named here in the text in verse 5 is God responds with a sort of holy jealousy. Did you notice that? A holy jealousy. We're not able to unpack uh, today all the nuances of God's jealousy, but there is a good sort of desire, a a good yearning to hold on to or to keep that which rightfully belongs to him. This good jealousy of God means that he's not letting go, that he's not just done with the covenant, that he's hanging on to it. And the way that God's holy jealousy is expressed, he says at the beginning of verse 6, is this. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. That we're adulteresses, but he gives more grace. More. That's the central truth here, that God's grace is bigger, wider, stronger. It is more, more, more in every way. That his grace is greater than all of your sin. If you could tally it up all, his grace would be bigger. And this grace is not something that we can earn, or else it would not be grace. Grace is by nature unearned and undeserved. It is grace that is given. He gives more grace. It's a gift that's through the work of Jesus to us. That's what we call the good news of the gospel of Jesus. We need this. He does these things to us that God gives us his immeasurable grace to his unfaithful bride. That is life for us. It's freedom. It's hope. It's peace. It's all these things. Hold on to the truth that he gives more grace. But we need to notice something else about this grace. James adds something that we cannot miss here. While God gives more grace, he does do that. While God gives more grace, not everyone receives that grace. Not everyone receives his grace. 
Who then does God give his grace to? You can see it if we listen closely as James starts to quote other parts of the scripture. Listen to verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Did you hear the contrast between the two groups? There's, There's the proud and the humble. And this is the difference between death and life, hell and heaven even. The proud God opposes, and the humble God gives grace. Some people might assume that God is always opposing everyone. He's kind of the, you know, the policeman in the sky. Or some other people assume that God is kind of always gracious to everyone. He's the grandpa that will give you a piece of candy no matter what you do. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says here that God opposes some and gives grace to others. And the difference between those two is whether the person is proud or humble. So I want to be part of the humble side. How how then are we to be those who are humble before God? That's the big question, isn't it? How? How can we be part of those who are humble Before we try to answer that question, I need to make something clear. I do not want to give the impression that all of this is on your shoulders, okay? This is not a little self-help guide to humbleness so that you can get into God's good graces. We know that every one of us, even Christians, perhaps even sometimes especially Christians, we have seeds and weeds of pride in our heart. It is there. And the Lord has to be the one to remove that from us, to dig it out. Pride can never kill itself. It loves its own pride too much. So Jesus has to do something in us that we cannot do. Humbleness, then, is not a prerequisite to grace, something that you have to add to Jesus to get in his good graces. It's the grace of Jesus itself that makes us humble. Grace of God can never be earned. Full stop. I want to be as clear about that as I can. With that, we should also never be passive in our humbleness. We want to pursue this. You know, the reason why James calls us adulteresses is not just to name call. This is not, you know, playground bullying. He's not just trying to be mean to us. He's crying out to us and even expecting in us some sort of response from that. What flows out of this verse, in verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, what comes out of that is a call to action. In fact, a whole bunch of calls to action. If we were to keep looking, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit yourselves, not wait for God to somehow scoop you up. Submit yourselves. This is something that we are to do. And this submission is just the first of 10 imperatives, we call them, or 10 commands that James calls us to do. We do it only by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of Christ, but we are called to do them, to pursue them, to submit to God and to humble ourselves before God. We will miss his whole point if we skip over those things. We don't have time this morning to to take a look at all 10 of his commands to us. 
So I'll do my best here in this last bit of time to group or to bundle these things together in categories. There are bookends, if you look in verses 7 through 10, the series of commands, the first one and the tenth one are submit yourselves at the first and humble yourselves at the end. Those are bookends that kind of bundle it all together. But between those, he shows us how and what humbleness looks like. And with these... uh, series of commands, I'm going to put them in three categories, which are these. This will carry us to the end. The three categories are return, remove, remorse. I even made them all start with R. Because that's what preachers do. Return, remove, remorse. We'll do these briefly and then we'll be done. Here's the first bundle. Return. You see these in verse. Uh, Where are they? seven and eight, which are the commands to resist the devil and to draw near to God. What's at hand here with both of these commands is a matter of proximity. That is, what it is that we're closest to. Okay? And we may find many times in our lives that Satan is very nearby and that God somehow seems very far or distant from us. Some people wonder, I say this with love, I experience it myself sometimes, some people may wonder why God feels so distant. But we wonder that sometimes when we've taken very few steps to draw near to him ourselves. You know, perhaps we've neglected prayer. Spending time in the word, you know, worshiping together now in community. We neglect those things, or or sometimes we might think that humbleness, to to really honor God in humbleness, means I'm supposed to stay away, that I'm supposed to stay low and far. How on earth are we expected to cultivate a strong covenant marriage if we don't take any effort to draw near to God? Some people avoid drawing near to God because they know their own sin. And I can see it. I'm aware of it. I know my own unworthiness. And as a result, some people almost prefer the company of devils. We think that's our place or that that's what we deserve. Do not listen Do not let your sin keep you from drawing near to God. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That means that God will see you. He sees you. He knows you. He knows all of your wrongs. But rather than run and hide, don't hide. Satan Satan loves the hiding places. Resist Satan and return to God. This will humble you because it exposes us, but it's good for us. There's the first bundle to return. Here's the second bundle. Remove. These are the, the dual commands to cleanse your hands you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That is, we're to remove or take away sin. And by removing sin, I'm not talking about taking away the guilt of sin. 
the punishment of sin, the payment of sin, the wrath of God against sin, that's something only Jesus can do, something he has done by the blood of his cross. What I mean by removing sin is take away the practice of sin, the doing of it. If there are jelly beans in my house, I'm going to eat them. If there are jelly beans in my house, I will find them and eat them. Even more so if those jelly beans, if I could see them, if they're on the jar or on the table, if they're in the jar, they're, you know, if they're in line of sight, you better believe I'm going for them. If I got any hope, I've got to remove them, get out, chuck those beans out the window. This becomes more serious when it comes to matters of sin. And Jesus was that serious about it. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, if your right eye causes you to sin, you tear it out. Please don't actually do that. You get his metaphor. Okay? We know our own vulnerabilities. I don't have to tell them to you. You know what it is you need to remove. If you are prone to sins of pornography, you might need to remove your computer. If you're prone to sins of vanity, you might need to chuck some of your makeup or dresses or jewelry. If you're prone to idleness, you might need to get rid of your TV. It's a big shift, I know. But there's purpose in it, in removing these things, you know? What, what good would it be if the adulteress returned and drew near to her husband, but she did not remove her tender profile and continued to flirt with other men on the side? What good would that be? You know, to remove sin is really humbling for us because it forces us to admit our weaknesses to see that we are not strong enough to deal with our sin on our own, that we need help and grace from God and probably from other people. That's the second set of commands under remove. The third and final set here, the third category is remorse. This is the largest group of commands. They're all in verse 9. Be wretched, mourn, weep, and turn your laughter. And that just sounds like a bummer, doesn't it? The Bible's telling me to be wretched. Come on. We know this is not supposed to be a pattern for our whole lives. That, you know, being a Christian means I'm just going to be perpetually unhappy. Christians are not meant to just slog around like Eeyores every day. You know, James's first words in this letter are, count it all joy, my brothers. And Paul writes, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. Really wants us to get it, that joy is a good part of the Christian life. But specifically in relation to our sin, we are to experience remorse. That is, we do not laugh at sin. We do not make light of sin. Sin is not a frivolous thing. So, if someone says, I'm so stubborn, ha ha, he he, 
A wise man would mourn over such things. Or if we say, I got so drunk last night, wasn't that hilarious? No, no. A wise man would weep over such things. Or if we say, I disdain that person so much and I really enjoy just tearing them apart and mocking them. A wise man would turn that joy to gloom. Real repentance for sin is more than just cutting it out. You know? It's more than just stopping and, you know, turning over a new leaf. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. Although it might also be that. Real repentance touches the emotions. That is, that we get the effect of our sin and of the harm that it caused. Paul calls this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, godly grief. It's a godly grief that leads to repentance. And we don't always automatically feel this way. A lot of times we like to just gloss over our sin. It's much easier that way. But sometimes we have to pause, really stop, and face our own sin. We have to really look at it and the effects of it so that we can get the sadness that it really is. Remorse over sin humbles us. You know, an, an adulteress who has lied and lied to her husband and cheated on him would have to look him in the face and say, I did real damage to you with my sin. I hurt you. Please forgive me. That's what James is after here for us. There is a good sort of remorse. Now, the goal of our humbleness before God is not just to make us sad. That's not the goal. That's the means to a greater end. The goal of humbleness before God is not just to make us sad. It's to restore us. To make us whole again. Humbleness is a gift of God that actually takes us somewhere. You can see where it goes at the very end of this section in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he, here's where it goes, he will exalt you. That's where this is going. That God would exalt us, that he would give us more grace, not only to be with him, but to delight in him, in the context of, of our covenant bonds with him. And once we're humbled, then we can really see, get, feel even the truth of his covenant that still remains true when he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Would you pray with me? Lord, we see the value in these things. And on one hand, we, we long to be with you, to dwell with you, to draw near to you, and yet we entertain other sins as part of our adulteries. Lord, would you cause us to return 
to remove sin and to feel remorse for our sin. Help us to draw near to the throne of grace through Jesus. Would you put our pride to death and make us humble that we would be exalted with you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.